I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, Every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. We're talking today about race and the war on drugs, two things that are inextricably linked in this country and many others. You know what I'm talking about. Racist sentencing laws involving crack versus powder cocaine, or the police stop and frisk policies that disproportionately affect young people of color. But how the war on drugs came to be and who supported it has a complicated history. Today's guest is James Foreman Jr., 
who wrote a book a few years ago called Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America, which landed up winning the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction uh, in 2018 and being listed on all sorts of bestsellers lists. Uh, He's a distinguished academic. He's been teaching at Yale Law School for the last 10 years. When he was younger, he came out of law school and and clerked at the Supreme Court for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. But after clerking, in the Supreme Court, what he did was relatively unusual. And it almost kind of reminded me a little bit of Obama's story, where Obama leaves Harvard Law School and goes back to Chicago and become a community organizer. And what James decided to do was to go work at the Public Defender's Office in D.C. This was in the mid-90s. And so, James, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Welcome to Psychoactive. And uh, let me just start by asking you, why did you do that? I had gone to law school intent on doing civil rights work. So when I was in law school, I worked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund uh, for two summers. And I really took a lot of classes that were focused on voting rights and employment law, traditional areas that civil rights law covered. But When I became a law clerk, one of the things that became very clear to me, and this is the early 90s, so we didn't have the term mass incarceration, but it was very clear to me that something terribly wrong and unjust was happening in our criminal system because I was working for judges, both on the Court of Appeals and then later the Supreme Court, and we were faced with cases where when I would read the underlying transcript I would see clear evidence of you know, legal malpractice, legal non-performance, lawyers just overburdened, not able to adequately represent their clients, and people who maybe some of them were guilty and getting longer sentences they deserve. Some of them may have been innocent and still were getting convicted. People were getting represented by attorneys that had 300, 400, 500 cases at a time, just getting shuttled through the process. And the appellate courts, the courts that you go to on appeal, weren't willing to do anything about it. Their position was, well, you got a trial, you had a lawyer, you had a warm body, that's good enough. And as I looked out at the world, I thought, well, what can I do? And it felt to me like working in that system, that criminal justice system, which is what we called it at the time, was the most important civil rights work I could do. And so even though it wasn't really talked about as civil rights work at the time, it felt clear to me that it was. And the DC Public Defender Service, where I went to work, which was only about a mile from the Supreme Court in terms of the offices, although very different (laughs) <laughs> in terms of decor and and that sort of thing. But it was one of the leading public defender's offices in the country. So the chance to go work with a group of lawyers that included people like Charles Ogletree and Angela Davis, people who really set the bar for what counted as excellent representation was just something that, that I couldn't pass up. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let's just set a broader context here. So when you start doing this in D.C., it's the early mid-90s. And, you know, in 1980, when there was a kind of lull between Nixon's drug war and then the drug war of the 80s, there were basically 500,000 
people behind bars in the United States, in federal and state prisons and local jails, of whom about 50,000 were there for a drug law violation. By the time you get to the early 2000s, we've gone from 500,000 people behind bars to over 2 million people behind bars. We've gone from having an incarceration rate that's kind of average for the world to having one that is astronomically greater, in fact, the highest in the world. And among the people behind bars, we've gone from 50,000 locked up on drug charges to 500,000 for whom a drug law violation was the principal offense. And that 500,000 doesn't even count all of the hundreds of thousands who get reincarcerated on parole and probation violations connected to drugs. And it doesn't even count the people committing crimes of, you know, prostitution or petty theft to support a drug habit. And it doesn't even count the people involved in the drug business who are getting involved in violent crimes that are as a result of the prohibitionist approach to drugs. So you're talking about a huge part of the prison population and jail population that's locked up in one way or another for either a direct drug law violation or something related. And when you break it out, you know, I was teaching at Princeton, living in New Jersey, and then I moved to New York. And those two states at that time led the country. Something like 50% of new admissions to prison were for drug law violations. The only place that was higher than that was Washington, D.C., where a substantial majority of all the people being sent to the jail and prison there were for a drug law violation. And there you are as a public defender working in the midst of this. I mean, what did it feel like? Well, we felt like warriors for justice. Whenever you're a minority group, you know, whether it's, you know, what the, the early abolitionists would have felt or People in the civil rights movement, and I know because both my parents were in the movement, my mom came and visited our office. And one of the first things she said was, wow, this reminds me of a movement office. And she was talking about the early 60s and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, where she was a member. So we, we had that kind of righteous indignation, certainty that we were fighting an unpopular cause, but a just cause. And that was the feeling that we had. Now, having said that, we also knew our position was unpopular, right? So we knew all of the statistics that you've just mentioned. I mean, we were working as public defenders at a time when those statistics were being compiled. So I was going into courtrooms and facing judges and prosecutors, probation officers, social workers, bailiffs, court marshals who would all look at your client as you're the one that's bringing down the community. You're the one that is causing so much harm and degradation. You're the one that has to be punished. You're the one that has to be banished. So we believed we were right, but I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's hard to work in a context when you see every day um, people being sent to prison for long periods of time, some subjected to you know, unjust conditions. I mean, it's hard to have a client who's addicted, who wants help, but there's a year-long waiting list for heroin treatment programs in the community. And the only way that she could get treatment, if she was going to ever get some, and it wasn't even very good, but the only way she could get a shorter waiting list was after she had been arrested and was facing sentencing. I mean, think about that. What is it like to live in a community where if you know you're an addict and you call the government 
and you say, I want help. I don't have any money, but I want help. I want treatment. And they say, okay, here, take a number. We'll call you back in a year to a heroin addict. But go out to the corner, sell something to feed your own addiction. Go sell five bags so that you get to keep one, which you can then use. Then you get busted. Then you're facing a maximum of 30 years. So we'll spend hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to lock somebody up in that era when we wouldn't even invest enough to open a treatment facility for much less money to serve their needs. So we're working in that context and that environment. And it's hard. It is exhausting to face up to that injustice every day and to carry that burden with you and to know that as hard as you're fighting, you lose more than you win. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, even back then, to the extent there was treatment available, almost the only way to get it if you were poor was basically through the criminal justice system. You know, there might be diversion programs. There were the emergence of these drug courts and things like this. There was the, the pretending to provide drug treatment behind bars. But if you didn't have the money to pay for it, that was going to be where it was going to happen. Now, I remember that, you know, here I'm teaching at Princeton, late 80s, early 90s, beginning to advocate. I'm surrounded by a lot of my, you know, generally liberally, politically minded colleagues. And what I see going on there is they're sort of abandoning basic liberal values when it comes to the drug war. And if I ask why, I think there were basically two reasons. One was freaking out about their kids, mm. right? It's the way in which the war on drugs is oftentimes justified as one great big child protection act. And therefore, we'll pay any price, bear any burden, lock up as many people if it's just going to make our kids a tiny bit safer. Mm. And the second part, which was more subtle in some respects, at least in their minds, was that the people getting locked up weren't our people right? That when you looked at pictures of who was going to prison, it was overwhelmingly black and brown people. I mean, I remember we started advocating to reform the Rockefeller drug laws in New York, these draconian drug laws, and 95% of all the people getting locked up were black and brown, even though that was, I mean, vastly disproportionate. It was a much smaller percent who were actually involved. I mean, you just saw this pervasive kind of otherism. There's no way that Americans would have endorsed this kind of mass incarceration approach if, in fact, most of the people going to prison were white. Hmm. How did that? I mean, here you are living in, in some respects, the only majority black jurisdiction in America. It's not quite a state, but, you hmm. know, I mean, what was that like for you in something in, in that type of context? Yeah, you know, it's an important point. And I and and I would love to hear your thoughts at some point on how you felt like you were able to shift the narrative with your colleagues at Princeton. You know, you sort of using those as a stand in for this part of the community that is both wealthy and whiter um, and therefore somewhat protected, how did you get them to care? Because they now do care. They now do understand uh, the drug war as an issue. I was working in a, in a different context, right? I was, I was having conversations with a different mm -hmm. group of people than what you're describing because I'm a black lawyer operating in a majority black city, as you say. Uh, and the dynamic there, the politics around uh, the drug war, even though it ended up leading to a similar set of policies and practice, right? Even though DC passes draconian laws and mandatory minimums, and like I mentioned, a maximum of 30 years um, for selling even a small amount of, of heroin um, or cocaine, 
the motivations are more complicated, I think, in the black community and a little bit different than what you described, which was sort of a, a, a view that, well, this isn't happening to our children. Because in the black community, people know it was happening to their children. Now, there is a little bit of a class story that we need to layer in here, right? Which is that the black elites who are elected to office and who run government agencies do receive some level of protection by their class status, but they don't receive total protection, right? They're still, for example, subject to police officers doesn't necessarily know um, their class background and maybe doesn't even care if they do know. Um, so they're, they receive some level of protection, but they're not nearly as protected from the ravages of the drug war than, for example, the white colleagues you're describing in Princeton. But another piece of the story in a majority black community is that there was this sense that even though members of our community were being targeted and being locked up, they were doing things that were wrong and were harmful and were damaging to our community. And they had to pay the price. It might not be fair that a white kid in New Jersey could carry drugs or even distribute drugs by sharing them with classmates or even selling them to classmates and get away with it. That might not be right. But what's happening in our neighborhood, what's happening in Anacostia, what's happening in Shaw, uh, what's happening in parts of D.C. that are being deeply affected by the drug trade, that has to be policed and it has to be punished. And so maybe they should send more police out to Princeton to make this equal, but they shouldn't stop sending police because I, voter, citizen, grandmother, shopkeeper, parent, I still want to be able to walk to school in peace and in safety. I don't want shots ringing out at all time of the day and night. I don't want my kids to be offered drugs on the way to school. I don't want to see a group of 15-year-old guys standing on the corner who need to be in school at 11 a.m. and aren't in school and are obviously selling drugs. Like That's not fair, and that's not safe, and that's not right, and they need to be punished. And then there's one more thing that I just want to put on the table, which is that in the Black community, that push towards punitiveness as a way of protecting ourselves is also matched by a desire for a deep investment in what we might call root cause solutions. Those same Black voters that want longer sentences or want the more aggressive policing, they also are asking for more investment in treatment programs, more investment in, in education, more investment in after-school programs. They're frustrated that the recreation center closes at 4 p.m. when it should be open until 8, 9, 10 p.m. They want the city to be spending money on those things. They want the federal government to be spending money on those things. So they're asking for more of everything, more policing, more prosecutions, but more investment in social services as well. And what we get in the 90s is not all of the above, right? What we get is one of the above. We get this unilateral focus on law enforcement, police prosecution, prisons as the solution. So those are some of, I think, the complicated dynamics that we need to layer in when we understand how it was that Black communities came to be behind some of these tough laws. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, James, you know, it was a, a curious phenomenon for me because, I mean, even when I started writing and speaking about this, you know, at the height of the drug war in the late 80s, the racial elements to this stuff, the fact that the origins of the drug laws were to, in many ways, racist. I mean, if you look at the origins of the cocaine mm. laws in the South or the ways in which marijuana laws were directed at Mexicans or the anti-opium laws at Chinese. So the origins of that were apparent to me. Um, it was also a history here when during alcohol prohibition, I mean, some of the leading champions to prohibit alcohol oftentimes were people from the black church, the black community who saw the devastation of alcohol in their communities and said, you know, let's support alcohol prohibition. And then, of course, where do the prohibition laws land up being disproportionately enforced is in black communities and against black people. And I see all this going on. But I'm not really in a position as a young white academic to be hitting the point of the racism of the drug war, in part because if I tried that, people coming from black communities would be saying, who are you, white professor, Ivy League professor, saying this sort of stuff? Do you have any idea what crack cocaine is doing to our community? Don't you understand? We need this tough stuff. We need this. And I would sometimes say, well, you know, sometimes it's a matter of trade-offs. Sometimes maybe you need, if you want more of the good stuff that you're talking about, the investment in communities, one needs to find ways to spend less on the law enforcement side, but those arguments did not start to really get traction until the mid to late 90s. Yeah, oh, it, well, it, if if then, I mean, I think not until later. Well, you know, I'm just thinking about in June, I saw there was a, a recent Supreme Court decision with Justice Thomas, the most conservative guy in the court writing it. And then you have, you know, Justice Sotomayor, the most liberal, who is no choice but to sign on because the law is pretty clear. But both of them are quoting your book in their decisions to make a different argument. Oh, yeah. I, I see what you mean when you're when you're putting the date in the mid 90s. You're really talking about within the black community specifically. So, yeah. So that that opinion, that was fascinating. Justice Thomas was trying to recount a particular history of black support for the kind of laws that were at issue that were that were being discussed in that case, right? Mandatory minimums and um, some of the, the crack cocaine distinction. And, you know, broadly speaking, he was making the point, which is correct, that many members of the Congressional Black Caucus supported uh, mandatory minimums in the 1980s, uh, that many leaders in the black community called crack the worst thing to hit us in slavery, which is actually a title of a chapter in my book. So he's making the point that, listen, to say that these just have a single, you know, racist origin is to misunderstand the history. And Justice Thomas was in D.C. in the 1980s. He was reading the same, you know, black papers and other newspapers and black media and, and black speakers in the broader media uh, who were making these claims that that crack cocaine was so damaging. And he draws on the book for that purpose. And then Justice Sotomayor says, well, Okay, yeah, but that's only part of the history. And then she expands it out to the 90s and she says, look, here's the thing you need to know. By the 1990s, when the racist impact and the racial impact of these laws started to become clear, many of the black elected officials who had supported these laws in the 80s, now by the mid 90s, were opposing them and were pretty consistently pretty uniformly saying, 
We need to end these mandatory minimums. We need to eliminate the crack cocaine distinction. And she makes the point, which we talked about earlier, which is, yeah, they wanted tougher laws even back in the 80s, but they also wanted all these other things, all these other investments that they weren't getting. And a bunch of reporters called me that day and said, you know, check this out. Two justices are citing your book and for opposite conclusions. And, you know, who's right? And what I said to them was, you know, this isn't going to be satisfying to you. And but they're both right. They, they are correctly using the book. And I believe correctly using the history for different points. And I do agree with you that by the 90s, certainly by the late 90s, within the black community, there was a growing understanding, at least among experts, I wouldn't say it had broadened out into the general population, that whatever the motivations had been in the 80s, now we were starting to see the terrible negative impact on the community. Mm -hmm. And by the way, just for our audience, when James referred to the crack cocaine disparity in the mid-1980s, Congress passed legislation where they basically said that possession or sale of small amounts of crack cocaine will get you the same penalty as sale or possession of 100 times as much powder cocaine. So you could get five to 10 years behind bars mandatory minimum for possessing five grams of crack cocaine. It would take 500 grams of powder cocaine. And by and large, you know, crack cocaine, the people getting locked up for crack cocaine possession and sale were typically black. And those on powder were more likely to be white or sometimes Hispanic. So that's the disparity we're talking about there. You know, James, I should say from where I was sitting, right? So I pop out in the late 1980s, I write a series of articles in prestigious journals. You asked how I began to move some of my colleagues. So I published a piece in the Liberal Journal of Foreign Policy, in the Conservative Journal of Public Interest, and then in the you know pro, uh, prestige publication Science, all basically saying the war on drugs is doing more harm than good. And probably the person I'm debating more often than any other one back then is Congressman Charlie Rangel. Really? Right. And he's the famous Harlem congressman and, you know, the, the you know, the successor to the famous his brother, Adam Clayton Powell. He's chairing the select committee on narcotics. And he and I are going at it on Nightline and on, you know, McNeil Lair Report and NPR and uh, ABC and stuff like this. And he's trying to mock me as the white professor saying this stuff. And I'm basically going at him about how he he is one of the biggest problems with American drug policy. Jesse Jackson, same thing. You know, he's declaring himself the leader. He is the general, the general. in the war on drugs. I think you mentioned that. Rangel said he was the general too. They both they both wanted to be the general in the war on drugs. And and Rangel had pushed through some of the most draconian policies. And mind you, it wasn't just on criminal justice stuff, right? You also had a needle exchange where the public health people were beginning to say, do it. And then what you see is huge opposition within black communities. In New York City, Mayor Dinkins becomes mayor, succeeding Ed Koch, and shuts down the one little trial needle exchange program. And the Congressional Black Caucus initially opposes, you know, needle exchange. But the transition happens most rapidly among black political leadership. I mean, that's where you see they essentially lead beginning in the mid-90s, whether it's on needle exchange, whether it's on sentencing reform. That, and it's where you see oftentimes the younger black leaders, the newer, younger members of Congress and also the state legislatures who are challenging the older generation, right? And so that's where we begin to get some actual momentum. And I should say, there were exceptions because what was pivotal when I started speaking out in 88 was you had in Baltimore, you know, a new mayor, 
former chief prosecutor Kurt Schmoke, who steps up at the Conference of Mayors, basically saying the war on drugs is doing more harm than good, right? You have um, James Baldwin speaking up in 86, saying we got to legalize drugs because you keep it this way, it's going to be against black people. But I mean, I remember how Kurt Schmoke bravely making this case as the as the black mayor of a majority, I believe, black city is just being clobbered by both white and black members of the community and leadership and just seen as this kind of deviant voice at the time. You know, you get to the mid 90s and it begins to evolve in a way that opens up the potential to begin to make some reforms possible, at least at the state level. Man, that is so interesting. Your perspective, I wish, honestly, I wish I had been able to find access to some of those debates between you and Wrangell in the in the 80s, because that would have been really rich uh, for material for the book. But Schmoke, right? Kurt Schmoke, you're so, this, he, there should be an award. I don't know. Are there, I don't know if there's a Kurt Schmoke award, but now in this era when there's an understanding, a, a really different understanding about uh, drugs and there's more of a consensus that goes in that direction. Somebody should honor him because you are so right. You are so right. Actually, James, the only award, the only award there is, is given out by the Drug Policy Alliance. My is organization, right? the Kurt Schmoke Award. Good for you. Yeah. Good I mean, for because you. Because I think one of the bravest politicians in America, you know, he would have made for a great U.S. senator from Maryland. And I think one of the things that got in his way was the fact that he'd been so courageous on this issue. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums, but I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. 
did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to say in your book, you talk about going to your students and getting these kind of blank stares. And you say, without taking heroin into account, one cannot understand African-American attitudes towards the drug war. And you go back into a history which very few people know about how and why the experience around heroin in the 60s and early 70s shaped things. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if my students today, I mean, if they know anything about this era that we're talking about, um, they know maybe a little bit about the 80s and 90s and crack, right? Maybe some of them have watched The Wire, um, but you're right. There's very little um, understanding about heroin in the 1960s, but heroin really devastated black communities in some analogous ways to what crack would do uh, in the 80s um, and, and, and I think set the stage for some of these um, punitive Black attitudes, some of the political leaders that we're talking about, they were in college and shortly after college in the 1960s. So they were very much alive during this period of time. So in the 1960s, the homicide rate doubled and in some cities uh, tripled. And at the same time, at the same time as homicides rates were increasing, you also saw a massive influx of heroin for a complicated set of historical reasons. Some of it had to do with um, exposure in, in Vietnam and and folks coming home. But for all the sort of different reasons, the bottom line is that you started to see, especially in the late 1960s, you started to see a huge uptick in heroin use and heroin addiction. So in D.C., which are the numbers that I know best, they test everyone entering the D.C. jail 
every year. And in the early 1960s, 1963, uh, about 4% of the people who are entering the jail are testing positive for heroin. And by the end of the decade, less than 10 years later, um, it has become, it has risen to almost 40 and 50%. So you get this massive increase, right? You get this explosion and it's then associated also with a lot of, of a public presentation of drug use. So you get syringes that are being uh, left in front of homes and businesses. You get people that are nodding off on park benches. You have people that are gathering on, on stoops and some of them are strung out. And you get neighbors, again, focusing on D.C., but the same story you could tell in every black community across the country, really kind of deluging their elected representatives saying, you got to do something about all of these heroin addicts. Our public spaces don't feel, they don't feel safe anymore. And I don't want to walk into my backyard and my back alley and find like multiple dirty syringes. Nobody wants to live like that. And so there's both a rise in heroin use, a rise in heroin addiction. There's a demand for a response. And there's also right, a deep distrust in the black community, which goes back for centuries, of government interventions and some government responses. So some of the Nixon administration, which did many, many, many terrible things on many topics, including on drug policy, one little small thing that they were doing right at the time was they actually were investing in methadone and other heroin treatment centers. But there was deep resistance to some of these centers from a very distrustful Black community, including Black nationalists who said, listen, we're fighting for our people's freedom. We are fighting a revolution. And we don't want our people to be strung out on heroin supplied by the pusher on the corner or methadone supplied by the government. Both of those are ways of keeping us down. They're ways of keeping us unconscious and they're ways of keeping us out of the fight that we all need to be engaged in. We need all of our faculties uh, to be able to fight for freedom and fight for justice and fight for civil rights. So you have this anti-drug from the left uh, perspective. You have a distrust of government perspective. You have neighbors and regular folks just freaking out about this problem. And at the same time, you have the very beginnings of what will become right the prison prosecutor uh, police approach that would end up being the dominant approach by the 1980s and 1990s. And it's like sitting there ready to seize on this opportunity. And that's that's ultimately what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting you bring up the methadone issue, James. I mean, it was oftentimes referred to in black communities as the white man's chemical bracelet as another form of social control. Yep. And I think what part of what helped to change that was when there was a fellow named Dr. Benny Prim, a, a liberal Republican and probably the leading black man in drug treatment circles nationally, who eventually entered the uh, federal government, Health and Human Services, under uh, the, the first President Bush. But I think when he starts speaking up, that that really moves things in New York and elsewhere. And I'll tell you another little story. It must have been, 
I don't know, mid, late 90s, uh, I get a meeting with Reverend Calvin Butts, who's the head of Abyssinian Church in Harlem, one of the most famous black ministers in the country. And people say, Ethan, whatever you do when you go up there, you know, you can talk about the arrest, incarceration, don't talk about methadone. But what the hell? And so I'm meeting with him and I raise the issue of methadone. And he says to me, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something about methanol. I'm going, okay, here it comes, chemical bracelet, all this sort of stuff. And he says, do you know that some of the most respected members of my church have been on methanol for many years? Do you know that some of the deacons in my church are on it? Do you know that in many of their cases, not even their family knows? I just know because of my pastoral privilege. And then he says to me, could you imagine what it would be like if they felt free to speak up in church and say, I am a person who has been on methanol for many years and nonetheless have a family and a job and leading a good life? Can you imagine the transformation that would happen? You know, it's another point you raise in your book, which is that the people who are being victimized by the war on drugs, oftentimes it's just young black men just being shipped into the system, but it's even people who are getting methadone maintenance treatment who are intimidated, that their voices yeah. are not heard. And that's changed a lot now. But back then, there was no sense that such a person was even entitled to have a voice. Yes. You, you, the issue that you raise is exactly right. This is true throughout America. It's also true in the black community, which is that some of the people who are most directly harmed, most directly affected, whether they are struggling with addiction, whether they're people who are incarcerated, their voices aren't valued. Their voices are very diminished when we talk about the problems with the system and what to do about it. I first saw this up close in DC in the 1990s the public defender service had people who would go lobby city council. And we were very reluctant to send our clients and their families to advocate on some of these issues, whether it was a prisoner's rights question or whether it was a stop and frisk kind of question. And we didn't, we didn't have an infrastructure to train people how to become effective advocates. It just wasn't a thing. And one of the reasons why that was the case is that there was a sense that our clients and their family members were so stigmatized and ridiculed. I talked before about how when they went into the courtroom and everyone looked at them as the enemy. So how are we going to send them down to the city council to argue um, on this issue? Weren't we just going to lose all, all credibility? And they often wouldn't have wanted to go testify because they would have felt all that scorn and shame and stigma being heaped upon them, right, by everybody at the city council hearing who's saying, well, you know, you want to come and talk about this problem with prison conditions, but let's talk about what you even did to be in prison in the first place. Or if it's the mom and you want to talk about disparities in, in the drug law, well, let's talk about why your kid was even out there in the drug game to begin with. What kind of mom are you? to have allowed that to happen, right? You can just imagine what a haunting and terrible experience that would be for, for somebody. So in the 90s, in the 2000s, until really fairly recently, still too much, but, but it is changing. Those voices are left out of the conversation. And so, you know, you get all those community members that I described who are outraged about the person that's nodding off on the bench and leaving the syringes or selling drugs on the corner. But Nobody who's actually being directly harmed by the system's response is 
getting their voice heard. So that to me, I think is one of the biggest things that has changed, but still has to continue to change. Um, and in particular, what I believe is that organizations that care about these issues have to continue to develop the advocacy skills. People really need to be trained and supported to become highly effective and to build on their life experiences and to be able to translate those into ways that persuade at the city, county, state, and national level. Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense. So here, I'm going to ask you a very challenging question now, uh, in part because I'm asking you to pack a lot into this. So there are three significant points you make in the book. I mean, many others, but three that I, I kept highlighting. One was you talk about the simultaneous over and under policing of crime in black communities. The second is you point out that mass incarceration, the, the rise of mass incarceration, is not the result of some great big campaign being mandated from on high, but a result of small, distinct steps with all sorts of different players. You know, nobody fully being responsible. Almost reminded me of the way you described it is the way we think about the financial meltdown in, in uh, housing and loan and all that in 2008, right, where everybody's making small steps. Nobody's ultimately responsible. And it all kind of adds up. And the third point you make is, while we tend to focus on Washington, D.C. in the federal government sense of the word and the, the White House and Congress and all that, in fact, most of criminal justice and most of the war on drugs is operating at the local level. So now I wonder if you could pull those three together and sort of analyze that. This is going to make the question really <laughs> tough. It's already tough, brother. It's already tough. Keep going. I know. Okay. But what really captured me in the book was you talk about the journey of Eric Holder from his years as U.S. attorney in, in D.C. to his years as attorney general for Obama, where he becomes the driving force in Obama's second term, basically for criminal justice and drug law reform. Just, you know, provide our audience with a sense, maybe through the lens of, of Eric Holder as a, as a key character in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I think Eric Holder in some ways is a perfect character to, to, to understand and the book in a lot of ways and to understand especially the trajectory from kind of the then to the now. You know, you've, in a number of your comments, you've talked about growth and evolution among uh, Black representatives that and elected officials that you've worked with over the years, right? Whether it's Rangel or Jackson. And, and I think Holder is a really great example of this. So Holder is a local elected official in Washington, D.C. So he has all that power that we're talking about that comes uh, at the local level initially, right? And, you know, 88% of prisoners in this country are in state and local prisons. And 85% of law enforcement in this country is state and local. So that's why, um, for listeners who care about this issue, the place that they want to be focused on is their state capital. The place they want to be focused on is at the city level. Those are much more important than whether or not the federal government passes this law or that law. On this topic, it really is. And Holder's an example of that. So he's a local elected official, uh, and then he gets he's a, uh, becomes an appointed official as the, the chief prosecutor in the city. And... Eric Holder is, in a lot of ways, I think, what we would call in the black community traditionally, and my parents' generation would call a race man. And by which I mean, he is somebody who deeply, passionately, like just every fiber in his body, he cares about black people and he wants the black community to thrive. 
And in the 80s and 90s, he's looking out at the world as a judge and as a prosecutor, and he sees crack as the worst thing that's hit us since slavery. He sees the body counts, the homicide rate um, getting to levels that it had never gotten to throughout history. And he gives a speech uh, in the early 1990s saying, listen, black people lost our freedom under Jim Crow, and we are losing our freedom now. But what's going to keep us from our freedom now isn't segregation. It's not Jim Crow. It's crime and violence. And people are afraid to leave their homes, right? So he draws a direct analogy from Selma to Washington, D.C. in the early 1990s. And he launches a very, very aggressive stop and frisk vehicle campaign, Operation Ceasefire, that leads to black drivers, black motorists, and especially young black people getting stopped and searched and frisked at overwhelmingly disproportionate numbers. And he does it because he wants to get the guns off the street, right? He does it because he wants to create a safe community and the tools that he feels like he has at hand is law enforcement. So he really does help to build the system of mass incarceration that we now know and call by that name. Having said that, by the time he gets into the federal government in the Obama administration, he's still a race man, and now he's looked at this accumulated evidence, and he's horrified. He doesn't tell the story the way I'm telling it. He doesn't identify his own actions in the way that I am. And elected officials and people in public life typically you know, don't do that. As academics, we say, oh, you know, I messed that one up. I was wrong. I make a mistake. That's not really like how elected officials really roll. But regardless, he does then take a series of actions, this time from the federal government standpoint, to try to undo some of the damage um, that has been caused. And my thing is, we're all going to make mistakes. I have made mistakes. We are going to take positions that are wrong. To me, what's really important is, are you willing to with an open mind, accept and evaluate new evidence, see when you're wrong, and act in response to try to chart a new course forward. And I think Holder can be very proud of the fact that he has done just that. Now, again, none of the individual actions that he took either in the 90s or more recently created this system or going to dismantle it. So when people say to me, well, what's the most important thing to do? I say it's all important, right? It's all important. The question is finding where you fit in, right? Where can you have influence? And every single person in this country, every single person who's listening to your podcast, they do have power. They do have the ability to help us chart a new course forward. It might be helping to legalize substances in the state that they're in. It might be ending disparities, ending mandatory minimums. We still have a lot of them. It might be getting clean slate legislation passed so that once you've served your time, your record is wiped clear and you get a chance to re-enter society as a full citizen. The precise laws and policies that need to change are going to vary from county to county, city to city, state to state. But I can guarantee you that there's work to be done in every single city, every single county, and every single state. And I think it's really up to us 
to seize that moment. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll tell you, when Black Lives Matter really emerged so rapidly a few years ago, five, six years ago, and for me, what was inspiring about it was it was as if there was a new civil rights movement that at last was not reluctant to embrace the drug policy reform agenda. Treat drugs as a health issue, pro-needle exchange and methadone, legalize marijuana and mass incarceration, I mean, all of these sorts of things. And I think part of it is when you look at the black people getting killed by cops, you know, you look at George Floyd, right, in Minneapolis, or, or before him, you know, Philando Castile in Minneapolis, or you look at Michael Brown, Ferguson, which set the whole thing off, or Lacan McDonald in Chicago, or Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa, right, or even the Eric Garner case involving a guy selling Lucy's in New York. In every case, what you have is the cops saying, oh, it only happened because they were on drugs. So there's this constant way in which the drug piece is being somehow used to excuse or legitimize a killing of a typically unarmed black man. And so there's something inspiring about that that's forcing the issue. And the question will be, I think, to some extent, as a younger generation of black activists and allies begin to age up, begin to have their own kids, begin to freak out about their own kids, will they land up becoming more conservative as well? Or will they keep to the kind of youthful enthusiasm um, that they've demonstrated over recent years? What do you think? Wow, that's a, I, I'm not really in the prediction business, but I do really like how you frame that question. I, I think... Yeah, I'm not I'm not in the prediction business, but I am, you know, I, I'm in the hoping business. The thing that I hope that some in this new generation will focus on is really trying to build up alternative structures and alternative approaches for how to respond to really what are real and genuine and pressing social problems. So to me, the libertarian take on drug policy has never had any appeal to me personally. And what I mean by that, and this gets a little bit to your question about sort of over-policing, under-policing, which is that in the black community, whether you're talking about drug policy, uh, whether you're talking about poverty, whatever it is that you're talking about, these issues harm black communities especially. And this is what a little bit was behind, right? When Rangel was making fun of you or attacking you in the 80s, even though I think he was wrong, right, on that, that ultimate issue, part of where he is coming from and part of where a lot of the people that I write about are coming from is they're like, look, this problem of addiction, this is real. Do not minimize it. Do not say, well, it'll just like, let's just do nothing and it will be fine. That for me, anyway, I know there's a lot of people and may probably you have a lot of listeners that are like down with that analysis. I'm not. I believe that whether we're talking about drugs or whether we're talking about violence, I don't care the issue that you're talking about. In the black community, because of a history of racism that goes back to slavery, which we had in this country for longer than we have it, because of that and Jim Crow and all of the inequities that persist to this day, in the black community, we need a robust, affirmative, trauma-informed, community-based and government-led and government-supported set of responses. So I don't want people to call 911 and send a police officer when there's somebody who's strung out on the corner, but I also don't want there to be no number to call. That's why I'm inspired by cities where activists are developing 
alternative systems, 311 systems where you can call a number and not get a police officer, but you can get a social worker, a mental health worker, a counselor who can come and respond because that person might be in need and they might want help. And I'm not for coercion, but I am for building up a very, very robust network so that everybody can access services as quickly and efficiently and with as much care as we would all want for our child. So my hope is that this new generation, alongside the critique of what happened over the last 50 years, right alongside that will be an equal commitment to building a new set of approaches going forward. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, 
a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things that also came out in your book was you talked about, I think, while you were still working in the public defender's office, you're involved in starting this charter school, the Maya Angelou School, educating people in the juvenile justice system. And that seems exactly like the sort of thing one needs a tremendous proliferation of. I mean, is that what you're talking about? And do you think it's possible for these things to be multiplied a hundred, a thousand fold and more? Well, yes, but it requires a significant investment. The Maya Angelou School, I mean, it's a good example of the kind of thing um, that we are going to need. And we're going to need more government support for to do programs like this. So when I in the 1990s, when I was a juvenile defender in D.C., and I was very frustrated by the fact that even when I would win a case and my client would be protected from the worst parts of this system, they would go back to the same nothing that they were involved in beforehand. They oftentimes had been already pushed out of the traditional public school. And they they were those kids that I talked about before that people were upset about who were 14, 15 years old, who were outside at 11 a.m. on a weekday. And people were like, why aren't they in school? Well, sometimes they weren't in school because they had been pushed out of the regular school. Sometimes they weren't in school because they had already been tracked into the least engaging classes. I was so frustrated when I would go to visit schools with some of my juvenile clients and I would see these alternative schools with outdated curriculum and no you know, functioning equipment and, and no useful, meaningful textbooks. I mean, it was, it was the kind of thing that if your child were put into that environment, you'd be sitting in, in the Board of Education. Like you'd go on like a hunger strike out of outrage that they consider this adequate education for your child. But because the kids are poor, because the kids are of color, because their parents, although they care a lot about education, don't have the resources or the access to influence public officials, nobody was objecting. So we said, well, what if we start an alternative school with a job training piece? Because so many of my clients, what they said was, you know, I want a job. I want good teachers. I want small classes. But I also want a chance to work and make money because I'm poor. I have no money. I can't take my girlfriend to the movies on a weekend. And so David Domenici, who is a lawyer in D.C., um, really kind of envisioned this. And together, we put it together with lots of support from my colleagues at the Public Defender's Office and lots of people around D.C. And we created what was initially a school for 20 kids. Uh, We now have a couple of uh, campuses We run the school now inside D.C.'s juvenile prison. And our basic idea is that the kids that need the most and the best should get it. 
we normally give them the least and the worst, but what if we actually gave them our best? What if we gave them small classes and engaged teachers in a robust curriculum and opportunity to work outside of school? What if we really invested in them and tried to create a sense of family in the school and a sense of high expectations while we supported them along the way, counselors and mental health workers, because many of them are suffering with trauma, sometimes never diagnosed. What if we did that? And we've now done that. But let me just go back to the point where we started. It's expensive. We're still not adequately funded um, by public sources. So we have to try to raise private money, which is hard. So yes, programs like ours can transform lives. They can change the statistical trajectory. They can change individual trajectory. They can help communities heal and thrive, but they can only do it if we're willing to say, you know what, that kid that's 14 years old and has been arrested or has dropped out of school and is four or five years behind and whose parent is incarcerated, they're gonna need more support and that's gonna cost more money. But that's the kind of thing, you're absolutely right, it's one example, there are many more. That's the mm -hmm. kind of infrastructure that I think that we need to build in communities, in black and brown communities, in poor communities of all colors across this country to, to, to give people the opportunity that they deserve. Well, you know, I guess, you know, I mean, just to conclude all this, here we are now in a period where in the last couple of years, the number of shootings and homicides has increased 30, 40, 50% in many parts of the country, where the fear of crime, especially violent crime is, is growing. Um, where people are beginning to to freak out. The rates are, of course, dramatically lower than they were back in the late 80s and early 90s, but people were getting accustomed to having very low rates. At the same time, we're also in an era where unlike under Reagan, uh, Bush, and and uh, Clinton, you know, where governments are spending more money to some extent. Then I look politically. I mean, you brought this up in your book that just a few years ago, you know, you still have public opinion polls showing a substantial majority of blacks, not as much as whites, but a substantial majority of blacks still saying they want more policing. And you see, you know, black voters overwhelmingly, especially older voters, supporting Joe Biden over the competitors in the Democratic primary who are much more supportive of criminal justice reform. When we look forward to these next few years, are we going to see some shutting down? You know, nothing freaks people out and makes them conservative like fears of rising crime. What's your take on these trends right now? I think it's hard to know. Obviously, you know, it's hard to be sure. And and one thing that we do know is that of all the things that we don't want to be in the prediction business about, uh, it's crime rates, um, because nobody would have predicted a 20-year steady decline starting in around 2000, late, late 1990s. Uh, you just couldn't have known that was going to happen. Um, I, I do think in the world that I operate in and what I see with, with teenagers and young people, the impact that the pandemic has had cannot be overestimated in terms of driving whatever's happening right now. Having said that, what I do believe is that we aren't going to go back because I think that there is a consciousness around some of those mistakes and the, the impact that they have had. I think if you look, for example, at President Biden's speech that he gave in response to rising crime rates, it was as different of a speech as, as a Biden would have given 25 years ago as you could ever possibly imagine. It was addressing the same topic. Crime is going up. And what are we going to do about it? 
But there was nothing in that speech about building more prisons. And in fact, there was a lot in that speech about community-based responses to crime, violence interruption, violence prevention, hospital-based interventions. There's a proposed $5 billion investment in community-based violence prevention. These are credible messengers programs. These are programs like Cure Violence, where they're going out into the neighborhoods. They're working with young people. When a shooting happens, they're going to the hospital. They're talking to the person who was shot and the family who was shot because they don't want a retaliation. This is one of the things that we, we do know about violent crime in particular is a huge percentage of it is retaliatory. So if you can interrupt that initial retaliation, then you can start to have isolated incidents as opposed to what you and I saw in the 80s and 90s, right? Which is incident, retaliation, retaliation, retaliation. All of a sudden you've got 10, 20, 30 shootings instead of one. So I, I, I don't believe, uh, this is where I, you know I said before, I don't do predictions, but I do do hope. I am a hopeful person and I don't believe that we are um, going to make the same, that, that similar set of mistakes. It may be that some of the momentum gets slowed. There's no doubt about it. But I think that we've made too much progress uh, to ever go back to the days when you were on Nightline um, talking about harm reduction and Charlie Rangel was telling you that you were uh, a naive liberal and what we needed to do was have more police and more prosecutors and more prisons. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think you, you point out in the book that distinguished the crack era was the ways in which the war on drugs also became a war against violent crime, much more so than was true in the heroin era. And I think part of the success of the drug policy reform efforts over the last 20 years has been that it's more and more disentangled that, that people have become more sophisticated, understanding that, you know, one reason we need to legalize marijuana is so that it just stops being a pretext for cops arresting vast numbers of young people. One reason we need to expand access to treatment is because we want to reduce the, the violence on, on the streets and drug markets. So I think there's a more sophisticated perspective on this stuff today, which really is promising for the future. James, I want to thank you, too, because I thought your book was a very brave and nuanced and thoughtful book. And I think it, it, it's a book of historic significance. I think it amply deserved the Pulitzer. And I just wish you all the best on your continuing engagements to try to uh, promote more sensible policies from your vantage point. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Adelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Baryosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Tune in next week for my conversation with sex columnist Dan Savage. Drugs are something I recommend to long-term couples frequently. 
you know, I think ecstasy saved my marriage. Terry and I were at a real low point and we got a cabin on the Pacific coast and took a weekend away and did E. I recommend pot all the time, a little bit of pot. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.